What I would say is don't wait until everyone else knows that the business is not a good fit. That is a sure way to destroy value, whether it's operational value by employees recognizing it and the market recognizing it or by investors recognizing it over time. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Andy West, one of our guests on today's podcast, talking about spinning off businesses. As he suggests, speed matters if you want to give both the parent company and its spun-off business the best chances of success. How can company leaders best ensure that their spin-offs create value? Well, today we have four experts with us to answer that very question. Andy is a senior partner in our Boston office and co-leads our M&A work globally. He's joined by Jan Kraus, a partner in Cologne, who leads our M&A transactions work across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Also by Anthony Liu, an associate partner and expert in M&A strategy development based in our Dallas office, and by Anna Matson, a partner based in our Zurich office who focuses on M&A strategy, integrations, and divestitures. Andy, Jan, and Anthony are also the co-authors of an article, Achieving Win-Win Spinoffs, which you can find on McKinsey.com and in the show notes to this episode. Andy, let's start with you. Why are divestitures, spinoffs, and other types of corporate separations becoming so important for leaders to pursue and to get right? Thanks, Sean. When we look at corporate performance, which is something we care a lot about at McKinsey, and we look at long-term value creation, what you see is an inextricable link between efficient capital allocation and active portfolio management and performance. Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about programmatic M&A and acquisitions, but equally important uh, in growing in relevance are spins and effective execution of spins. So uh, it's something we research heavily and we think is absolutely critical uh, to especially large corporate players as I think about performance uh, overall. Uh, when you look at separation activity, uh, you'll see in terms of both numbers of deals and the value of deals uh, in uh, recent times, we're at an all-time high, right, in terms of separation activity. Now, this is correlated with multiple expansion, uh, which is logical, right? When prices are high and values are high, you tend to see people more willing to part with assets, right, for a good price. But I think what's very unique about what we're seeing right now is that this spike in activity is happening during a crisis. And... You know, I think there are a few reasons why it's happening uh, with a few implications for medium to long term uh, separation activity. I think one is you're seeing the acceleration of phenomena that was in place for quite some time, right, which is really active portfolio review uh, driven by activist shareholders uh, and more and more often management and boards. So taking a very, very hard look at whether you're the natural owner of an asset uh, and being willing to part with that asset if the answer is no. I think what's also unique right now is that you're seeing the impact of COVID affecting all sectors, right? Not just a part of the economy. So as companies reevaluate how they compete, where they compete, their supply chain, you know, what geographies uh, they want to participate in, et cetera, you, people look at their portfolio and say, well, does this fit, right? And so you're seeing more and more critical p- portfolio review. Uh, and as a result, I think you're going to see more separations. Obviously, valuations can go up and down depending on the economy. But I think a few of these forces are going to make separations and managing uh, spins uh, more relevant than ever for a long time to come. And in your article, you say that spinoffs are an important part of managing the corporate portfolio and that they can create significant value, but that not all spinoffs are value creating. 
Anthony, can you share with us a little bit about the recent track record of corporate spinoffs? So for those of you that follow, you know, McKinsey, you'll be familiar that, uh, you know, how we typically measure success in M&A, which is grounded on, you know, whether or not the transactions created value for shareholders, i.e. total return to shareholders or TRS. Specifically, what we are talking about is excess TRS, excess to the performance of the, of the industry sector uh, the company plays in. Uh, w- when it comes to spinoffs, our research has shown that, you know, performance in terms of excess TRS is kind of a mixed bag. Uh, we looked at over 350, you know, public company spins since 1992 and found that roughly 25% of them can be considered win-win, meaning both the parent company and the spun-off company generated, you know, TRS two years after completing the spin-off transaction. You know, roughly 38% of those spin-offs had, you know, one or the, or either parent uh, or spin code generate positive excess TRS and the other generate negative Excess TRS, while thirty percent of thirty-seven percent of the spinoffs we looked at uh, generated negative TRS results for both parent co and spin co. So, trying to game a spinoff or divestiture to, you know, benefit parent co or spin co, isn't something we would recommend. Uh, whereas w- we believe aspiring towards win-win for both is the the better strategy. Your article also mentions that revenue growth is a major value driver for win-win spinoffs. Why did revenue growth have such an outsized impact on performance, and what role did margin growth play? So, if, if we look, you know, historically, you know, at which companies pursued spinoffs, in, in many cases, they were they were profitable businesses that either had grown too big, or you know, market forces had you know changed in a way that you know, fundamentally cha- challenged their current business models, which ultimately led to stagnant or, or declining growth. Um, these companies would then pursue spinoffs as a way to unlock value, you know, by freeing up capital capabilities, you know, people to pursue growth opportunities that, you know, they could probably not or for various reasons could not do it as a combined uh, entity. Um, you know, that, that step change in a company's growth prospects and, you know, the expectations, you know, ultimately rewarded by investors. You know, I think those are some of why you see this, uh, this in the performance data, particularly around the revenue growth. So in doing the research for our article on win-win spins, we, we, we took a look at what the companies did to achieve those results. We also looked into the drivers of the metrics behind all this, right? I mean, specifically margin impact from spins. We get that question quite a bit. Um, as you can imagine, both cost for uh, from a GNA and COGS perspective, as a percentage of revenue increased for after the spin uh, for both Spinco and Parenco for most of the cases that we saw. Uh, what was interesting, though, was that most of them, at least the most successful ones, were able to reduce those costs to pre-spin levels in roughly two years after making some significant improvements, both you know uh, around COGS but specifically around GNA. This indicates that most were able to address. The, the synergies and stranded costs that could be a barrier to pursuing um, those spins or divestitures. Hey, Sean, and one thing I'll add on that too is, you know, when you look at the data, don't forget that there are a lot of disenergies often with separation. And so that margin change, staying stable, right, or, or you know, slight improvement, uh, doesn't mean that 
there wasn't actually a lot of work that had to be done in order to make that happen, right? You have the loss of scale, you have the need to build new infrastructure. And so the fact that within two years, you're able to grow the top line while, while maintaining uh, the bottom line on both sides is actually, I think, important nuance to understand. So it's not as if margin is irrelevant. You just often have to pedal pretty hard to stay where you are, uh, where revenue does represent a real, usually an unlock in terms of capital allocation, the ability to go after new customers, management focus, et cetera. That makes a lot of sense. So margin uh, margins are relevant, but uh, not the deciding factor. So l- let's just turn to the how of... Um, of making spinoffs successful and value creating. What's the recipe for ensuring that a spinoff actually produces that needed revenue growth so that both the parent and the spinoff business create value? Jan, can you take us through that? Yeah, thank you, Sean. Um, So the research that we have done clearly shows the strong correlation between growth on both sides, right? On the parent co side and on the spin co side and outsize returns for investors. And consequently, we advise management teams to plan ahead and uh, basically to create the growth agenda that then can deliver that growth. In line with spin-off situations, there's often the opportunity to allocate capital and resources differently. How do you deploy that capital? How do you use your freely gained independence from the parent co, for example, uh, to go after new customer groups, to explore new geographies, to open up sales channels that you have not explored so far. So any growth plan that we uh, develop has the first element that goes to an analysis, looking at the opportunity that is that are created with the spin-off situation, as well as, and that's, that's an important factor, uh, the potential risks, right? Andy just alluded to, the disynergies that come with a spin-off situation. And, and sometimes there's also kind of, with the disruption that comes in the spin-off situation, also risks to top line. Yeah? Staying focused, staying um, in business with usual, and then adding on, on, on to top of that, that is very crucial. Hence, the first step is a thorough analysis. The second step that we see in such a growth plan is the creation of content or a, a library of assets. Um, you need to be in a position to explain to your customers what the spin-off situation means to them. Um, in some instances, it's talking points. It's a well-prepared Q&A. In some instances, it is a commitment to your customers, maybe in form of a parental guarantee. Um, some might ask for something like this. So this could happen. And, and sometimes it's, 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 it's a kind of very well thought through kind of communication plan that that that, that you enable your line managers uh, to basically um, communicate the structures and processes that we would like to see is a if you call it nerve center commercial um, war room where you kind of uh, comprise people that are actually able to talk to uh, the kind of spin-off situation and, and, and kind of enable your customers to stick with your existing plan and then also kind of um, keep on uh, working together with you. And then finally, a rollout um, to prepare for day one, to set everyone up to make this a positive event and a kind of a, a, a remarkable event also for the employees in the spin-off situation. 
Got it. So, um, Jan, how soon should the management team start developing these plans and processes? You know, business leaders need to be confident that the deal is actually going to take place, but then they also want to be able to move quickly once it does. So do you have any rules of thumb about timing for when you start that planning, maybe related to deal size? Yeah, in terms of timing. I mean, <laughs> Sean, this really depends on kind of the size of the spin-off, right? We have seen some major spin-off that's just been recently announced. That magnitude calls for thorough preparation, and you would ideally start a year before the day one. Now, in, I would say, medium-sized situations that we also see a lot, um, three to six months seems to be a reasonable time frame to prepare the plan that I've just alluded to. The one thing I would add, Sean, on, on timing as well is um, when you do look at time, and, and everything that Jan said is absolutely right, when, when you look at time from announcement, usually after about 12 months, you see a significant drop in performance, right? And there are a million reasons why a separation or a spin could get delayed. But I would say, just think in your mind, moving as quickly as possible, none of the increases in share price or valuation happen unless something actually happens in the market. When you look at it and you say companies that have a plan that they didn't execute, the value of the organization, the multiple expansion or whatever anecdote you want to use for value creation doesn't happen unless you do something. Now, some things have a long lead time. Other things are very quick in terms of their ability to implement. But when you think about revenue and unlocking new customer groups and new products or new offerings, it usually has a pretty long lead time. And so I would say moving quickly is typically quite important and really do keep an eye on the instability associated with announcing a spin and understand that affects your employees, your customers, and markets that you work in. So we have a penchant for moving quickly, not recklessly, but quickly, uh, particularly from the time of announcement. And certainly once you announce, you should know the risks. And this is what Jan was talking about, the preparation even before announcement. You should know the risks and the timing and the long poles in the tent. Do you find that um, management teams pursue divestitures with the same enthusiasm as acquisitions as part of a broader portfolio reshaping, or are they typically driven by external pressures, for example, from activist investors? Let me just say, um, no, I, I think there's a massive amount of bias in, in almost every organization that gets in the way of effective and efficient capital allocation. We take a, a long look at behavioral economics, right? And we have a whole bunch of material if anybody's in, interested in our Bias Buster series, which you can check out online written by Tim Kohler, who also is the author of Valuation. But you know, as we look at the issues, whether it's recency bias or risk aversion or sunk cost fallacy, or you can just keep listing them out, all of these things keep people in general from separating or selling assets, right? So there are a lot of things you can do um, from a budgeting perspective, from a strategy perspective. But I do think just beginning with recognizing that inertia is A, probably not a good thing over medium to long-term periods, and is also everywhere in terms of management decision-making is, is really important. And, and one of the, just one practical thing I'll say before we get into some more of the nuances is, you know, as part of the strategy process, you know, not only bringing companies you'd like to buy, but does every BU bring two or three assets they think you should sell or dispose of? Uh, just to make people think actively and proactively. It doesn't mean you're gonna do it, in fact, I would posit it means you're probably not going to do it, 
but just bringing some of these kind of tricks into the dialogue uh, in order to just have an honest conversation about these assets is, uh, is super critical. Thanks, Andy. Those are great points. Um, all right, Jan, let's return to some of the other things that, um, that go into a successful separation. Yeah. Operation excellence is, is another critical element. Um, and here, I would really like to point out uh, one critical theme, and, and that is in a spin-off situation, um, there is excellent momentum to restructure, change processes, uh, adopt some of the models that you already have, in particular in the spin core. However, that needs to be carefully evaluated because the excitement that is created by some spin core situations equals also instability. Um, and before you actually change a running system, before you undertake an outsourcing project in a spin-off situation, you want to be very clear and very uh, uh, sure that this doesn't disrupt and this does not endanger the spin-off situation as such. And Anna, I think you've been in a, a couple of live situations lately. Maybe you want to um, allude to those. Yes. Um, so I would say when I started doing spin-offs and separations, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was this picture of let's minimize the risk as much as possible. But actually what I'm seeing in, in recent months specifically is a real trend to actually preparing fit for purpose operating models and actually using some of these spins to actually prepare and change things as well whilst managing that risks, right? But really using the separation and the spin process as a lever for change. Um, one company, for example, I recently supported in a preparation for a spin, they took a zero-based approach to designing the new cooperating model and really took a critical look and said, what do we actually really need? Where can we simplify? Where can we be more agile? But also, where do we actually have capabilities that are really critical for us to be successful with the strategy we've laid out? Now, they laid this out and actually were able to create 20% savings. So we talked about dissynergies earlier, but they were actually in the support functions able to create 20% DNA savings. Not all of that was implemented by day one, um, but they had a clear plan and started implementing some of that, weighing off that risk with what can we change now and what can we change later. Of course, where you actually have savings on the Spinco side, there might be stranded costs on the Remainco side. So obviously, as a Remainco, they took a very thorough approach to understanding where those potential stranded costs would be and how they would address it. So actually looking at both sides, Remainco and Spinco. And one concept I think that can be quite helpful in this is to create what I call a day zero. You have your day one where you actually have the spin, but a day zero is almost like your internal carve-out date in which you can actually start implementing some of these changes. And it's your first phase and you do it decoupled from the risk of the actual spin and the transaction side of things. And you have a bit of a way to actually test if the new new changes actually are working. Given what Anna just said about how spinoffs can unlock opportunities for transformation, when should the work on transforming the two companies' operating models start? Does it start before announcing the spinoff or during its planning and execution? And what would go into the decisions about which parts of the organization to adapt and when? Jan, do you want to take that first? Yeah, um, it's actually a good question. And I think first and foremost, the timeline we are working against is the ultimate driver of whether there's enough time to do adoptions or changes through operating model. Um, 
oftentimes, in particular in situations where a spin-off is not completely voluntary, so you could think about regulatory pressure or pressure from the outside, um, companies are working against very tight timelines. And consequently, there is very little kind of wiggle room to adopt uh, kind of operating models or to change uh, kind of systems. Um, and, and, and our advice also in those situations would be focus on the spin-off. There are other situations where you have a more strategic setting where uh, companies after a thorough portfolio review come to the conclusion to divest parts of their businesses and those are uh, without such time pressure and they can be used to actually uh, then also adopt the operating models. What we often do is we, we go through uh, the operating models function by functions or sub-segment by sub-segment and look, take a hard look and say, um, do we have the time and what are the benefits of changing models uh, before the spin? And... Uh, Typical candidates for not changing a lot is, for example, the information technology department where everyone's happy that this is actually running uh, without any frictions. And there's a lot, a lot of kind of workload imposed on the IT department just by separating the entities. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at more transactional tasks, let's say in finance or in HR or so, it actually might make sense to adopt and use the momentum created yeah, of the separation and the spin-off uh, to, to, to make changes, to outsource some of the services, to counter some of the synergies uh, that we usually see in these spin-off situations. Got it. Um, thank you. So now that we've gone through the importance of operational rigor and making a quick transition to growth, Anna, can you share some of the other drivers of successful spin-offs? I'm happy to. Yeah, happy to. We're going to talk a bit about leadership attention. But uh, as you can imagine, a spin is a very exciting time, isn't it? And uh, as a leadership, it's very easy to actually put all of your attention on a spin. But I would say what's really important is that the leadership attention is actually very prioritized and focused. Because if business isn't running, you have a real problem. You can forget any successful spin. So the first principle I would always say is keep focused on the road ahead, keep the, keep the wheels on the car driving. Business as usual needs to function. What I would do is really make sure that the leadership attention is focused on three groups. First of all, I would say as a leadership, what really makes a sense is to spend time and really being consistent around the messaging you give to investors, being very consistent about what is the equity story, what's the narrative of the SpinCo and where, what is it going to be as a standalone uh, strategy. That's going to be really important. It needs to be, you know, something that it's really worth taking leadership time out to actually spend time on that, even pre-spin, right? Very, very consistently. Secondly, Customers, partners, the next, I would say, stakeholder group. It's really important where I would focus some of the leadership attention. Um, my colleagues have mentioned it before, right? Really important to calm the nerves there, making sure that customers understand what is the value proposition? What's in, you know, what, what are some of the guarantees they might need? Um, and how do you make sure they really buy in to why you're doing the spin and what it actually means to them and that it's a positive story for them? And then thirdly, very naturally, right? The employees, making sure the employees have a good experience around this. There's a spin will create a lot of uncertainty amongst all employees. And what you need 
both at Remainco and at Spinco is of everyone's full attention on running the business and running the spin. And the sooner you can calm the nerves, you know, spending some real time, some face time, I would say, even in COVID times, if it's possible, makes a really, real, real difference. Have a really solid governance and structure in place where it's clear who is actually working on the spin, who actually makes decision, and how can you actually ensure speedy decision making to provide that clarity to those three stakeholder groups I just talked about. How much of the top management's time should be focused on running the remaining business and how much on the spinoffs execution? Do the spinoffs tend to dominate their agendas? I think there's this view that sometimes the leadership needs to be fully at 100% all of the time, right? But I would say when I talk about being prioritized and focused, there's a couple of key timings that are really important. First of all, you probably have a very small number of people from the, even from the leadership under the tent before you get to the deal announcement. And engagement really spikes at deal announcement because you do need to communicate to customers, to partners, to, to the investors, obviously, but also to the employees. Then there's a bit of a ramp-up period between deal announcement and actually the real day one, so the actual spin spin date, where leadership engagement again needs to increase because you're preparing for the spin, you're preparing the separation. And a key milestone there obviously should be as early as possible is when actually the new leadership is announced because that's not always exactly the same as the business unit or the division that is being spun out, right? And there usually tends to be changes because you need to have new capabilities in as well. And then it doesn't actually just succeed after the after the actual spin, right? It doesn't just end because you usually have a number of milestones post-spin where there are key changes and you actually need leadership engaged on those. And it can be things like the next wave of leadership being announced. It can be things like the location changing or the headquarter actually moving. You might be exiting some long-term, longer-term or shorter-term transitional services and changes. And this is also times where I would actually see increased leadership time. As you mentioned, the transition for employees also needs to be carefully managed. How big a role does talent and culture play in the success of a spinoff or its failure? It's the the soft stuff that's really hard to get right in a spin. And I think the win-win mindset a lot of times comes around the talent, because I think both sides will want to have the right talent in place. What I see in good situations, what I see happening is that there is a clean slate shape taking on terms of looking at the operating model and saying, what talent do I actually need in this Vinco? And what talent do I need in Remainco? And not having everyone fight to keep the best talent in their view. And I think the win-win mindset is where there's real clarity on what talent do I need in Spinco, and then actually having a process in place where if you can't actually transfer that talent from remain code to a parent code to Spinco, you actually have a quick process to actually recruit that talent, bring that in. I think also making sure that the leadership team is set up with the right capabilities. I always say, for example, a divisional finance leader might not have the same capability as you need for an IPO spin spin off uh, finance uh, CFO role, where you might need to really deal with investors and there's different capabilities required. So really understanding what do, what capabilities do I need and making sure Spinco has that talent is one of the factors I think is really important. Culture, really hard to get right. And it's sometimes that's something that actually doesn't get enough attention, I would say, in spins. For me, the really good spins are where, where cultures are actually really being used as a differentiator. 
And, and the example I see is sometimes we, we see spins or splits of companies where one part remains more as a commodity type of business and the other side becomes a speciality business. Culture can be a key enabler in terms of how you run that company, how you actually enable, motivate people as well to, to be part of the new story that Spinco or even also what Remainco will have. I'll give you an example. If you're a life sciences company and you have one part being around innovative pharma, the other one being maybe more consumer health generics, you can create very different culture, which sets the tone for what you're trying to do. So for me, I think what I've seen work really well is where culture is actually being used as a key enabler of a successful spin. That's really interesting. And we've published articles about culture and talent issues often being the root causes behind failed deals. Um, why, why do you think these softer issues, as you call them, why are they so hard to manage? And, and what should business leaders be doing differently to maybe bake them into the spin process? Yeah, no, so I think there's two reasons why it gets ignored, right? I think the one is sometimes the, the speed at which a spin removes that and the myriad of things you need to be doing. I always say the softer sides of things get, get neglected a little bit because there's so many hard, hard things that need to get right, right? So I think there's a speed. And then I think it's sometimes it's actually hard. Uh, what people actually don't know what they need to do. And I think if, you know, what I think works really well is to actually embed comms, culture, and change as a key work stream really from the start. Really early on, starting to build out what are the, you know, what, what is my communication plan? What is in the change plan? What culture do I want? But what are also some of the hard changes that are going to happen that people need to be trained for so they understand? Because nothing worse than, you know, spin day one happens, the employees come to Spinco and they can't log on to the laptop. They don't know how a process works. They can't call their customers, can't go and see their customers, right? So it's managing through, I would say, the softer side of the, of the change and the culture and what's the new mindset you need to be running Spinco and managing that. And then it also so helping the employees to understand what the hard changes are and how you actually, how they are prepared and they can actually business as usual runs. I don't know if anyone wants to add anything on that one. Just one perspective. <laughs> Culture topics have, have a lead time, right? It, it takes time until the first employees leave because they are so unhappy with what's happening yeah, in, in a spin-off situation. And consequently, I think what, what we have done in some situations, we have implemented health checks for a broader population, not just the top management, but kind of a broader kind of employee set to actually get ahead of the curve and, and, and kind of feel the pulse of the, of the employees uh, in, in, in parent and in SPINCO. And um, that, that usually helps to kind of detect those cultural topics early on. Division or lack of agreement among a leadership team can also be a significant challenge in getting the culture and talent piece right. Anna, how do you get everybody, or how do you help your clients get everybody aligned on the initial idea that the spinoff is the right thing to do? Sean, I think if my first message is always make sure there's alignment. Um, and, and I know it's hard, and I know a lot of times it's actually underestimated what this alignment means. But I think doing work early on to say, what is the strategy here? Well, how are we separating? What is, why are we doing this spin? And actually spending some real quality time getting that on paper, you know, getting everyone aligned, threshing it out, actually bringing out if there are key, key dis, you know, disconnects, what are those? And, you know, really, and then actually agreeing as a leadership team, because you are still one company pre-spin. You are one company, one leadership, right? 
what are the key messages we're giving? Because it's going to be detrimental to both parent co and spin co if there's misalignment. You're going to confuse uh, customers, you're going to confuse employees, and nothing worse than alignment. And I think it sometimes gets underestimated how much alignment and clarity on communication is needed. In these situations, you cannot over-communicate. You cannot have enough, you know, enough scripts, etc. And I think one of the topics we like to talk about a lot is that as a leadership, you might have been thinking about this bin for a long time. You might feel very comfortable with it. But as a customer, as an employee, it might be news to you. What is old news, news to you as leadership might be new news to you as a, as a, as a customer and employee. And that's really important to keep in mind and actually build a very solid comms program around that as well. Communication, culture and change are really the critical components of navigating the organizational transformation in, in win-win spins, right? As I said, communication, timely, specific, but also frequent. Don't underestimate that need to communicate. Um, and also making sure on the parent co side, you communicate. A lot of times we focus on spin co because that's where the news is, that's where the spin is. But as parent co, employees, customers, etc., you're going to need that certainty as well. So I think that's really, really critical. And what I've seen work really well here is that leadership has the change story nailed down. It's built on the equity story, but they explain and they make it really personal. And why are we changing? And I've seen that recently. I was in a town hall in December where leadership stood up as a you know, combined group and told their personal stories, how excited they were about this bin. And then thirdly, make sure that there is some, you know, change tool and change initiatives. What I would say there, though, is don't also overdo it. I've seen spins where all of a sudden all employees were sitting in hours and hours of training. It was uncoordinated and, and they actually didn't have the time to do their jobs. Be clear on who actually needs to have getting those trainings and those communications. If there were one area of spinoff preparation or execution that you really have to get right first, what would that be? And are there any elements that tend to be big pitfalls that you want to uh, counsel our listeners to avoid? Okay, so a couple of things I would say. I think the first thing is get the equity story right. Why are you doing the spin and what is SpinCo going to do? That equity story really sets the base for all of the other work you're going to be doing, be it on how you separate, what operating model you build, what you communicate, etc. I think the other thing there that that gets wrong sometimes is is not going at speed. So being, you know, having the clear conviction of where you're going, but then actually moving at speed. I think using to be very clear on how do you move from the as is where things are really entangled to how do you disentangle it, put the right capabilities, the right operating model, the fit for purpose operating model, as we call it. And then I think very, very importantly, making sure you have the right people to actually run this. Get the A team. Make sure that, you know, it's very clear on who is running the spin. You have the right decision making. It can be done in a speedy way. And then it's this, the soft factors like culture, comms, change management, making sure that those actually are, are taken into account. Because a lot of times they're forgotten in the, I would say, in the, in the heat of things and in the speed of things as well. I don't know if anyone wants to add because there's lots of lots of reasons, lots of things to get wrong and lots of things to get right, right, Anthony? Yeah, Anna, you're absolutely right. And you know, going back to the data, you know, why why are there so many of them that you know tend to have some you know not not satisfactory results? What we did see is there are there is some gaming that's going on in terms of how the spinoffs are being set up. You know, some many of these times there there there's this thinking about there's a good co and, a, and there's a bad co, and that's just not the right mindset, especially if you're going, undergoing something as transformative as a spin. Getting that equity story right, even for something that is maybe slower growing, but probably has some healthy cash flow, some really cap- some capabilities that might be unlocked now that they're independent. 
No, that's 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 the thinking that needs to be incorporated, and that's what we mean by win-win. There there is a pathway to win-win. It's just a matter of mindset and making sure that you commit to it. Got it. So, in the lose-lose scenarios that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Anthony, where both the parent company and the spun-off business both lose value, did you find any commonalities there in terms of missteps or faulty decisions? You know, for many of the lose-lose uh, cases that we saw. The, there, there's definitely a lot of externalities that impacted the performance of the companies post-spin that uh, just frankly, they, they just couldn't anticipate, right? And there's some timing elements to it, you know. Some, but then I think it's also a factor of how do you respond to those? Because at, at the end of the day, the business hasn't really, or at least, the, 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 you know, cor- corporate businesses don't change, you know, overnight, uh, it, it goes over time and that, that, that being that flexibility, that agileness to be able to respond to those market conditions, um, especially now that you are hopefully leaner, more nimble, um, unlocked to, to do things that you probably couldn't do prior to spinoff. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, lean on some of those levers to address um, potential negative impacts from uh, externalities. I would just say it, it is hard to look at separation performance. It is rife with anecdotes and it is hard because the baseline is always moving. And so unlike M&A, which we spend a lot of time researching or on the buy side, it is very hard to get a stable baseline around performance. And in those lose-lose scenarios, you do have both industries that are structurally challenged, undergoing massive shifts uh, and actually preserving a lot of value by doing that. But you also have just distressed assets. You have regulatory remedies forced divestitures based on larger scale acquisitions, for example. So there is a whole myriad of challenged uh, situations in that lose-lose bucket. Uh, and we should just be trend. It's not all just execution, right? And uh, liabilities is a big one. Balance sheet ambiguity, what you do with debt, what you do with liabilities, how do you think about some of those things can also lead to those lose-lose situations, right? Where you just have an untenable asset which creates all sorts of issues and transparency for both companies. So it's a really good question, um, but it's, it's one that's, that's hard to answer other than there is a lot of challenged uh, environments uh, in those lose-lose scenarios. Andy, you mentioned at the beginning the, this concept of natural ownership or being a natural owner. How do companies determine whether they, ha- whether they are that natural owner of a given division or asset and when is a spin or sale to a private company the right answer? Oh, excuse me. And when is a spin or sale to private equity the right answer? The most ambiguity I see amongst management teams, forget who you're selling to, but around your own natural ownership is this concept because it's very hard to define. If I, on average, go talk to, to 10 companies about why they should sell something, I will get at least three smart, logical, entirely different points of view either around the advantage or the best owner of the asset or their own capabilities to add value in the future, right? So I do think it's an astute question and it's a difficult one to answer. Um, look, I do think private equity you know, exists uh, for a reason and or bringing companies private can exist for a reason. There are some fundamentals of organizations and companies are particularly around long-term capital redeployment or major strategic shifts that are better handled, uh, seem to be better handled in the, in the private market. But look, I think the question is, you know, a lot of times the process itself will identify who puts the most value on the asset. And the implication for management is you've got to go in open-minded, understanding that maybe until you're fairly far down a particular path, you could have a variety of exit scenarios that you're going to have to manage. 
uh, until that uh, until that best owner that that optimal buyer becomes clear. But I don't know if uh, any of my other colleagues want to uh, jump in. Yeah, the only only thing I'll add is you know it kind of goes back to the rationale of either spin or divestment. You know, is it to access capital or is it to you know free up uh, capabilities so that you can go after growth opportunities that you can't prior to spin off or divestment? Or in some cases, it is trying to find uh, partners in others entities that can provide capabilities and in many cases private equity uh, that has expertise that can help unlock additional value uh, in other areas. Are there any specific triggers that tend to or should drive the timing of when to consider and execute a spinoff? I'll tell you what it shouldn't be a trigger is the price in the market. What I would say is strategic relevance. Um, Often you know long before the market knows what I would say is don't wait until everyone else knows that the business is not a good fit. That is a sure way to destroy value, uh, whether it's operational value by employees recognizing it and the market recognizing it or by investors recognizing it over time. So make it part of your strategy process. Have an honest conversation. Uh, look at returns, look at growth, and then look at your strategy and your natural competitive advantage. But have a structured, fact-based conversation because all too often anecdotes end up ruling the day. And that's where all the bias comes in that I mentioned earlier. And Andy, just to add on that, right? I think the other thing, because you can never time the market, but you can run a dual track process, right? Where you, on the one hand, look at a spin, and on the other one, you also run in parallel the process for a sale. A lot of the separation activities, a lot of the preparation activities you do are very similar for a long time. And that, that way you can also gain a bit of time, but the preparation is obviously key. Andy, Anna, thank you for that. This is our last question. It's going to go to Jan and Anthony. What's your take on the spinoffs that have recently been announced in the energy sector? Do you think they're related more to revenue growth or the business model and the transition to net zero that it helps enable? And if you could also just comment more broadly on this notion of spinoffs driven by business models. Yeah, that, that is an excellent question. I actually spent quite some time in that field Um you know, the, the spin-offs that we see or the separations of, of renewables assets from traditional utilities follow a clear industrial logic. Uh, investors attach higher multiples to, uh, to, to renewables assets. Um, investors like those because they have a much more favorable, sustainable investment profile. Um, and, and, and they also have other different competitive dynamics than traditional uh, generating assets like coal power plants or nuclear plants and so forth. So um, I personally believe that it makes a lot of sense to separate those assets um, and, and kind of the, the benefits that we see also in, in, in the different valuations uh, basically kind of uh, apply to that logic. Now, um, how successful those spin-offs are, that remains to be seen. Some have just been announced, but in, in, in kind of kind of from a value creation logic, I can clearly see kind of why you would do that. You know, uh, let me let me also add that um, you know we should differentiate uh, the rationale for a spinoff versus what you know what we're talking about today, which is are the factors that once you've you know made the decision to spin or divest, uh, these are the things that you need to focus on to make sure that they're successful. Now, the rationale may be, hey, let's access new capital, let's you know unlock. Um, some some drivers that can help us you know grow faster later on um, or other you know market you know dynamics that are disrupting our business. But ultimately, once that decision has been made, 
you know, you need to focus on growth. You need to focus on your operating model. You need to focus on culture, talent, and, and making sure that you're prioritizing the right things. That is a great way to end us, Anthony. Thank you. And Andy, Anthony, Jan, and Anna, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Achieving Win-Win Spinoffs available on McKinsey.com and in the link in the show notes for today's episode. As always, we'll share a transcript of this discussion on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room. <laughs>